The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here today. Those of you watching, thanks for joining us live. It's always good to have you here. Um, Our country right now is in a state of, I don't know, disbelief, shock, turmoil. I I don't know what, you know, what exactly to call it. But here's what I want you to understand. The, The issue here is not Democrat against Republican. The issue is not left against right. The issue is evil versus good. That really is the bottom line. All right. And those who think they are in power now, they want to promote every form of sexual deviance that they can come up with. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. You know, they want to do away with gender. Gender doesn't matter. Now guys can play on women's teams. And, you know, it just like I said, it's just crazy. They want to be able to and are killing the unborn up until full term, and even beyond that, when they, even after they're born, they can decide to terminate them. They want to censor and eliminate all things that basically oppose them, which is Christianity, but they're trying to make it uh, so that anybody who basically who opposes them can be branded as a terrorist organization. I mean, we're seeing it, you know, social media, if you say something they don't agree with, they take you down, block you out. Drop the whole, you know, parlor platform. Now, I heard the parlor is supposed to be coming back next week, but I don't know if that's true or not. All right? Our leaders right now are in bed with the Chinese Communist Party. And if something doesn't change, you better start learning your Chinese. All right? Because they're going to own this country. And I could go on and on, but I, I know you get the point. But here's what I want you to understand. I have not given up. Okay? I, I just... I haven't given up. I believe that this administration is illegitimate, and I believe that God will remove it. And I don't mean in four years. I mean in the next couple months. Now, why do I believe that? Well, a couple things, mainly because Yahweh is righteous. But as a secondary note here, President Trump said this in his departure speech, the future of this country has never been better. Any of you that know him at all, know anything about him, you think he would say that if he felt the Biden administration was going to be running this country? I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't see that at all. He's against abortion, so we know they're going to push that. And I don't know how this country could ever be better until we deal with that issue. I mean, there's blood in the land, and we got to do something to stop that. So that, that's one of the reasons. He also said this, we will be back in some form. I think that's interesting. <laughs> okay. I think I know what he's talking about, but uh, that's kind of cool. But the main reason I, I haven't given up, and, and I think something's going to happen to stop this ungodly, unrighteous administration, is that our God is righteous, I mean, we've been talking about the attributes of God. We've been focusing on sovereignty a lot because I think that brings us great comfort. Our God is in control. He absolutely is. 
But I also want us to understand that he's not only in control, one of his attributes is that he's righteous. So for our study this morning, I want to kind of remind us that our God is a righteous God. And as a righteous God, he will judge evil. I know it doesn't happen on our timetable, it doesn't happen when we think he should do it, but you can be guaranteed that he will judge evil. Now to drive this into our thinking this morning, I want to look at Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Paul's introduction here to the book of Romans is the longest of his introductions. It covers 17 verses. It divides into three parts. The first seven verses is his salutation. Then in verse 8 through 15, Paul is giving thanks to God for the Romans, and he tells them of his prayer for them and about his travel plans. And then in verses 16 and 17, he talks about God's righteousness. And we want to focus on that this morning. I believe that verses 16 and 17 form the theme and the thesis for the epistle of Romans. This whole epistle is really an explanation of what we see in these verses. Paul starts out, verse 16, with four. This is the Greek word gar. And when Paul says for, he is explaining what has just gone before. When you see the gar there, it's, you have to look before that. So he says in verse 15, For I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he is eager, eager because, gar there, for or because, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now in the Greek of these two verses, Paul uses gar three times. And in the final explanatory clause, he expresses the deepest thing that he really wishes to say. And we'll get to that. But he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What does Paul mean here by this? I mean, why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Well, to understand this, we really have to understand what Paul means by the word ashamed. You know, the problem is we read something in the Bible, we go, I know what that word means. That doesn't, what does it mean to them? Not, not what does it mean to you. You know, different words have different meanings to different people. So we have to understand, well, how is he using it? The dictionary definition of ashamed is being affected by shame. And shame is defined as a painful emotion excited by a consciousness of guilt, disgrace, or dishonor. I think that is how most people today would view the word ashamed. But this is not the biblical definition of shame. The biblical understanding has to do with disappointment. Now, according to scriptures, the person who is not ashamed is the person who trust is, whose trust is not misplaced and who therefore is never disillusioned. The word shame comes from two Greek words. One is epi, which means upon, but it's really an intensifier here. The other word is aiskunomai, and I think it's best translated as disappoint. Now, when we look up a word in Strong's or Young's lexicon, they'll give you the etymology of the word. Now, the etymology is the dictionary definition. That's how you define a word. But oftentimes, that is not how it's used in the Bible. There's another way to find out what a word means, and that is by its usage. How is the word used in Scripture? Now, in exegesis, which is drawing out of Scripture what's in there, exegesis, usage always takes precedence over etymology. Why? Why does usage always take precedence? 
because words change their meaning over time. If I gave you a book a hundred years ago and I said, scan this, will you? You would have the understanding to read it thoroughly to digest it. If I gave it to you today, you'd probably be looking for a machine to put it on, you know, to run it through, or you know, scan to us means to, you know, kind of lightly look over. That's 180 out from what it used to mean. Words change their meaning so that we want to see how an author uses the word. That's very important. We want to find the usage. And the way to find the usage is get a Greek concordance and look up how that word has been used in the Bible. And as you find its usage, you'll be able to determine what that author means by that. Now, I know that's work, but it's worth it, okay? You'll get excited because you'll learn some things. Now, the meaning of disappoint for the Greek word aiskunas is unmistakable, I think, at several important points. For example, in Romans 5, 4 and 5, he says, An endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame. Hope doesn't make you ashamed. Does that make sense? Because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the Christian Standard Bible and the New American Standard Bible say this, this hope will not disappoint us. Now, hope and disappointment go good together, don't they? If you have something you hope for and you don't get it, you're disappointed. But if you have something you hope for and you don't get it, are you ashamed? See, shame doesn't really fit there. The word shame here is kata aiskuno. It's a strengthened form of aiskuno. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon translates this, does not disappoint. Phillips correctly paraphrases a steady hope that will never disappoint us. Kittle, in his theological dictionary of New Testament words, says, extra-biblically, the word ashamed was often used for disillusionment. Look at Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Put to shame here is katais kuno. New American Standard translates it, will not be disappointed. No one who believes in God is going to be disappointed. Alright? Romans 10.11. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Again, the same Greek word, kata aiskuno. The idea is no one who trusts in God will ever be disappointed. Now that has a different meaning than being ashamed. All right, I think you see that. 2 Corinthians 7, 13 and 14. Therefore, as we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all, for whoever boasts, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. <coughs> Excuse me. The word is shamed here, epies kunomai, as in Romans 1.16, and it should be translated disappointed. Paul says, I was not disappointed. Because he knew that God was going to deliver him through his sufferings. This is a banking metaphor. Paul is saying, God has the power to keep that which I've deposited with him, and I'm not disappointed by my sufferings. So in Romans 1.16, Paul is saying that he has never been disappointed in the gospel. 
Now, some scholars suggest that Paul is using a literary device here in this statement known as a litetes, which litetes is using a negative to state the positive. <laughs> in this case, by means of litetes, Paul implied that he gloried in the gospel. He's not disappointed. It's, it's exactly the opposite. All right. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul has already said in his introduction that the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it was concerning his son, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, to a Jew in Paul's days, the word gospel would make them look back to Isaiah. It was good news to Jerusalem of deliverance from Babylon and the personal return of Yahweh to deliver them from their exile. So to the Jews, the good news was the arrival of Messiah, Israel's anointed king to bring God's people back from exile. Paul's gospel is Yeshua, the Christ, is Lord. The Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, the Christ, is the Lord of the world. Caesar is not Lord, but Yeshua is. He says, for, speaking of the gospel, because, we could translate that, this is another gar here, because it's the power of God. He explains why he's not disappointed. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Power here is the word dunamis. That's the word from we get our word dynamic or dynamo or dynamite. The announcement that Yeshua is Lord is the power of God that brings deliverance. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, the following context of 1 Corinthians 1 here clarifies that the power of the gospel lies in its effective work in calling the elect to salvation. Look at 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called... Both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the gospel is not about potential salvation. It is about the power of God for salvation to His elect. The preaching of the gospel doesn't merely make salvation possible, but affects salvation in those who are the called. The connection between the power of God and election is also seen in 1 Thessalonians 1 here. For we know, brothers, loved of God, that He has chosen you. All right, Paul's telling the Thessalonians, you've been chosen by God. Because, how does he know this? He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul knows that the Thessalonians are chosen because the gospel came to them in power. It is the power of God for salvation. Now, when Paul refers to salvation, he especially has in mind the saving promises that God made to Israel throughout the Old Covenant. So the salvation that is available in Paul's Gospel involves the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Salvation here is from the word soteria, uh, this is also sodzen, to save, usually in a future sense here. Now, it denotes deliverance from 
The eschatological judgment of God. Now, I think Paul has in mind here the final triumph of the gospel and bringing believers to eternal safety and joy in the presence of God. Now, we see this future sense here in Romans 5, 9, and 10. Paul talks about the future salvation as a rescue from the final wrath of God. In Romans 5, 9, and 10, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved, by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And twice here Paul says, shall we be saved. In other words, the full experience of salvation in Paul's thinking is future. They're looking forward to this. Now, Most commentators explain salvation by saying that it has a past, a present, and a future dimension. Have you heard that? The past, present, and future of salvation? They would say the past points to our justification, that our standing with God has changed through the power of the gospel. No longer are we condemned or even looked at by God as unrighteous. That's true. But they would say salvation has a present aspect, and that points to our sanctification so that the gospel continues to work in our lives purifying us from the pollution of sin and delivering us from its power. Then they would say our salvation has a future aspect which points to glorification, that we live with this anticipation of eternity with Christ and hope characterizes us as we wait for that day when we are totally delivered from the presence of sin to dwell forever in Christ's presence. Now, Are we looking forward to a future tense of salvation? I'm not. But Paul certainly was. Okay? In Romans 13, 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. Why? He says, your salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. We're getting closer. We're getting closer to salvation. What do you mean? Didn't they have it? No, listen, people, salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century believers. It was their hope. And people, you do not hope for what you have, right? They looked forward to its soon arrival. Notice what Paul says next. He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So he is equating their salvation with the day, which is referring to the new covenant. The old covenant was night. He says, you know the time. This is the Greek word kairos, and it means a season or special, critical, strategic period of time. It is used of a season of great importance in redemptive history. The completion of redemptive history was at hand, and with it would come salvation. But here's what we need to understand. And this is so important to understanding Scripture. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age, which is not this age. It's this age to the people who wrote the Bible. The age they were living in. And the age to come, and that was to come for them, and it's already here for us. We live in the age to come. And the understanding of these two ages and when they changed is fundamental to interpreting the Bible. If you don't get this, you're not going to interpret Scripture right. You're just not going to do it. 
you're going to think you're in a different age than you're in. And if you think you're in a different age, things were different in that age than they are in this age. The New Testament writers lived in the age that they called this age. To the New Testament writers, this age, the age to come, was future. But it was very near because the age they lived in, this age, was about to end. We now live in what the Bible calls the age to come. So when you're reading your Bible and it says the age to come, put an X there and say, that's where I am. I'm in the age to come. Okay, I'm not into this age. They wrote that 2,000 years ago. Things have changed. They were waiting for that change. The the, the age to come is the new covenant age. The 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust, A.D. 70, was a time of transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And in this transition period, the New Covenant had been inaugurated, but not consummated. It was a time of already but not yet. How many are familiar with that term, already but not yet? Okay, writers use that now. They say, this is already but not yet. Listen, already but not yet ended at AD 70. It was only for that 40-year period. They already had salvation, but they waited for it. They already had redemption, but they waited for it because it wasn't completed. At 8070, it's completed. If you hear somebody say today, well, this is already but not yet, they don't know what time it is. They don't know what age they're living in. There is no not yet. There's no not yet for us. Okay? After 8070, redemption is complete. We live in the new covenant. Our salvation is complete. We're not looking for anything. We're not missing anything. We're not hoping for anything. We have it all, people. And that's so important to understand. So when Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, I take him to mean that the gospel is the only message in the world that powerfully can bring a person to everlasting life, to joy in the presence of a holy and glorious God. It's the only thing that can do that. He says, this is to everyone who believes. People's salvation's power operates only through faith. That's the only way it operates. The importance of believing is emphasized here. Where there is faith, there is the power of God operative in salvation. Now, this conflicts with a teaching today that is becoming very predominant called universalism. Anybody heard of it? Universalism. Universalism is the teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between God and all people throughout history. And this reconciliation, they say, will occur regardless of whether they believe or reject Christ as Savior during their lifetime. And universalism, everybody's going to be saved. They don't have to believe, they don't have to do anything. Some people are saved, they just don't know it. That teaching is false. And it's, it's a damnable teaching, okay? Because, well, why don't I have to believe the gospel? I don't have to do anything. Everybody's going to be saved. Well, that's wonderful, okay? It's just not what the Bible teaches. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who is born, everyone who is alive. Everyone who believes. You have to believe the gospel. John Calvin, 
said this, The gospel is indeed offered to all for their salvation, but the power of it appears not everywhere. In other words, if you're not chosen, if you're not one of the elect, the power is not there. All right? Believing people is our response to the gospel of Christ. Faith, which is in noun form for believe, is not something we work up on our own. Faith is an evangelical grace. It is a gift of God that comes through the regenerating work of the Spirit so that we might lay hold of what God has done for us through Christ. Once God gives us life, we respond to the gospel in faith because it's the power of God. And the power works in the regenerate people. And we believe the gospel. But believing is important. He says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, the Bible teaches that the Jews had, and I say had, in the first century, priority because salvation is from the Jews. Notice what Yeshua told the Samaritan woman. He said, you worship what you don't know. They, they were confused, the Samaritans. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, all salvation is salvation through God's covenant with Abraham. The Greek here reads, to the Jew first and also equally to the Greek. See, there's, no, there's a temporal priority here for the Jews. But the Gentiles are not second-class citizens. All right? In the church of Yeshua the Christ, Jews and Greeks are on equal footing. Our faith makes us sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 know, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, if they're of faith, that means they believe, right? That's why they're sons of Abraham. This is not universalism, people. You have to believe. It's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And through sons be, becoming sons of Abraham, the gospel becomes the power of God. Why is the gospel the power of God and the salvation that everyone believes? Well, Paul explains it in the 17th verse. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, another gar. And if Paul, when Paul says for, he is explaining what has just gone before. In other words, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because, gar, it is through the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this phrase, which really dominates Romans, has been taken in two different ways in the history of the church. The Greek phrase is simply God's righteousness. Now the trouble with this phrase is that the Greek genitives can go one way or the other. For example, the phrase, the love of God. Does this mean God's love for us, or does it mean our love for God? Is this a subjective or an objective genitive? Well, is it God's own love? That would be the subjective genitive. Or is it our love for God, the objective genitive? So scholars have debated whether the phrase the righteousness of God is God's own righteousness or whether it's the righteousness that God gives. And there's a huge difference between those two people. Okay? The mainstream view, which you probably already know I'm going to go against that because I just seem to go against the mainstream, okay? The mainstream view is that this righteousness that Paul speaks of here is not God's own righteousness, 
but it's a righteousness from God, the righteousness what God gives on the basis of faith. The righteous status they have because of Christ's imputed righteousness. Now, the Bible does teach us about the righteousness that is from God. For example, Philippians 3, 7 and 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Yeshua, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Dung is a better translation there. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, this righteousness depends on what? <laughs> faith. You've got to believe, people. Paul says that this righteousness is from God, but in Romans, Paul does not use this phrase, the righteousness from God, but says the righteousness of God. And if you trace this phrase back into its Jewish roots, you'll find it has many different connotations, but it is never used of a righteous status which is a gift from God. And in Romans 3, 21-31, a righteousness from God doesn't fit in there. It doesn't make sense. So I think that Paul is speaking here of God's righteousness, His character. God is a righteous God. Certainly the Scriptures acknowledge God as righteous. Even Pharaoh confessed, Yahweh is the righteous one. In Exodus 9, 27. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 11:7 says, For Yahweh is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 119, 137, righteous are you, Yahweh, and right are your rules. See, God is. Our God is truly righteous. But seeing that meaning in Romans 1.17 really bothers some people. One commentator writes this. Some identify this as reference to God's character. That'd be me. But if this is, is what Paul means, then this is a most fearful statement. Only the upright can see his face. If we are not righteous, then we cannot face him. His righteousness then becomes a dread. Now see, I would agree that to someone who will not come to the obedience of faith, a righteous God is a terror. Absolutely. But Paul is saying that the good news reveals the righteousness of God. He is righteous. And I guess then what we want to see is, what is this righteousness that comes from God? Martin Luther describes his encounter with this term as he studied the book of Romans, Luther says this, But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word of chapter 117. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk 
without reproach. I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. This is before he's even saved, okay? I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. See, I think Luther's problem here, he didn't understand what God's righteousness meant. He didn't understand it. And as a sinner, he was terrified by it, and he should have been. There are several scholars today, Williams, Dunn, Kaler, Davies, O'Brien, Wright, just to name a few, who have suggested that the term righteousness of God is referring to God's covenant faithfulness. And I think we can understand it if we think about it. God is righteous. He is faithful to the covenant. It describes His covenant faithfulness. But here's what you have to understand. Part of that covenant faithfulness is wrath to those who disobey the covenant. Covenant faithfulness is not just being faithful to those who are in the covenant. It's wrath to those who refuse the covenant. All right? In other words, they're talking about His saving actions are rooted in His faithfulness to the covenant that He enacted with His people. And when the phrase, the righteousness of God, occurs in biblical and post-biblical Jewish texts, it always refers to God's own righteousness. Or we could say, God's own faithfulness to the covenant. Righteousness here is the Greek word, dikaiosune. It is that aspect of God's character, because of which, despite Israel's sin and consequent banishment, God will remain true to the covenant that He made with Abraham And he would rescue those who were true to the covenant. This righteousness is a form of justice. God's covenant is binding upon him. And through this covenant, he has promised to save Israel. But he's also promised to judge them if they refuse the covenant. So what we have in Romans 1.17 is that in the gospel, God's covenant faithfulness is being revealed. His faithfulness to those who trust Him in obedience of faith. His faithfulness to judge those who refuse that. And this is in the present tense. The covenant faithfulness of God is presently being revealed, Paul says, in the preaching of the gospel. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul is quoting here from Habakkuk. This is, to me, one of the biggest advantages of the New American Standard Bible. If you have that Bible, whenever they're quoting from the Tanakh, they put it in all caps. So when you read it, you say, hey, that's a quote. Here's another advantage of reading the Bible over and over and over and over. You start to realize, hey, that's I know where that's from. I just read that not long ago. That's from Habakkuk. Then you can move on from the New American once you get that that down. Well, Paul's quoting here from Habakkuk 2. Verse 3 and 4, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now at that moment, he's saying God's people must live by their faith trusting that God will eventually punish the wicked nation and bring salvation to Israel. 
And Paul, in quoting Habakkuk, is saying, God will be faithful to the covenant with Israel. I think you're familiar with Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk crying out to God, God, why don't you do something? Israel's a mess. Look at the sin. Look at... I've been doing that. God, why don't you do something with this country? And then God says, I'm going to do something. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm bringing the Chaldeans and wipe you guys out. And he's like, oh, you got another plan? I, I didn't want that one. But he's, he's being reminded that God's faithful to his covenant with Israel. He's not going to wipe them out. He's going to chasten them. But they must live by faith that God will be faithful to the covenant that he made with them. Believers, our God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. And that's so important because today it's such a, a rare thing that people keep their word. People say things, and you know, I'm one of these foolish people that if you say something, I believe it. Or, unless I've known you in the past and not be very accurate or faithful to your word, then I just don't believe it. You tell me something, I'm like, I don't believe that because you got a past of not keeping your word. But we, we should be able to, when you say something, that, that's your character. Take it to the bank. Yes, this is what I'm going to do. The Bible talks about he that swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, you, make, you say you're going to do something, just do it. Even if it costs you. Because your word is very important. It, it's about your name, your character. Do you have a good name? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> a good name is your character something that can be counted on. Well, Paul's quoting Habakkuk. He's saying God is faithful to the covenant. His judgment of the nations and salvation of Israel will come. They must live by faith that God will be faithful to His covenant. Believers, our God is faithful. He keeps His promises. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Paul put that this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called under the fellowship of His Son, Yeshua the Christ our Lord. Now, the to emphasize the concept of God's faithfulness, Paul places this word first in the Greek sentence. Literally translated, it reads this way. Faithful is God. Faithfulness means trustworthy. Therefore, God is trustworthy and we can depend upon Him. Our faithful God has called us into a union, into a partnership with His Son. And He is trustworthy when He promises that this union is permanent. This union does not depend on my labors, my works, my faithfulness. I am blameless in the covenant because God is faithful. You know, eternity doesn't lay in my actions. It lays in God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to the covenant. And once I enter that covenant, by faith in Christ, I'm in that covenant. Romans 1.18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by who their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now again, four here, another gar. And what do we do when we see gar? What's he saying? Okay, we want to go back. He's explaining what has just gone before. He said, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk there, right? For the wrath of God. So this four points back to the righteous shall live by faith, of verse 17. Well, let's look at how Paul explains this quote from Habakkuk with verse 18 
talking about the wrath of God. So he's explaining this quote from Habakkuk, and he's going to talk about wrath. In, quote, in quoting Habakkuk, he is saying, God will be faithful to His covenant with Israel. His judgment of the nations and salvation of Israel will come, and they must live by faith that God will be faithful to carry out the covenant promises. What was it that God wanted from Israel? Romans 5 tells us, verse 7, For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. That's God's vineyard, Israel. His pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So what God was looking for among Israel was justice and righteousness. It wasn't to be found. So he said he would judge his people. If God looks at America looking for justice and righteousness, what would he find? I mean, you know, justice is not being done. The courts are so perverted. I've read something, I think just the other day, you know, Trump was uh, pardoning people. He pardoned someone, a man who had been in prison for 27 years, on a drug charge, a non-violent drug charge. People, that is criminal. That is sickening. You know, they decide what drugs are good, what drugs are bad, and you use the bad one, then guess what? Biden was very instrumental in that, people, by the way. You know, oh, you got marijuana, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. What are we doing? How sick is that? There's no justice there. And people who commit Heinous crimes, what are we, oh, just, well, just slap them on the wrist. No big deal. You know, I used to think God needs to judge this country because of its sin. But I'm, my view is kind of changing on that now. Because I really think the corruption in this country is primarily located in Washington, D.C. I mean, I mean that, people. I, the people in, that's D.C., when, when I hear these government people say, oh, they broke into the sanctuary. Sanctuary, that's a cesspool. That's, what that, that's not a sanctuary. More crimes have been committed in that building than anywhere in the world. Okay? That's a, it's an ungodly, unrighteous place where criminals are padding their own pocketbook at the expense of us normal people. It's criminal. And I don't think your average person is that bad of a person. We hear it from Hollywood. Okay, let's... Let's move across the country. Another cesspool, all right, in Hollywood. But I think the most, the majority of people are decent people who care about one another, who care about God. You know, I, I see in this America First movement so many people who all they, they're quoting scriptures and talking about God and loving God. And I know the Dems, they do talk about God. I just wonder what God are they talking about, Okay. I mean, it's crazy to me. So I, I think that, you know, God doesn't really need to judge this nation. What He needs to judge is D.C., Hollywood. And, of course, you got the news media with the megaphone that make it sound like that's what everybody in America is about. We know that's not true just based on the rallies that Trump carried. I mean, all those people showing up, why? Because they wanted justice. They wanted things to change. 
The leadership is supposed to answer to the people. That's not happening in this country. And it needs to change, people. It needs to change. Let me go on here. Isaiah 5, he says, But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice, and the Holy God shows Himself holy and righteous. God's going to show Himself holy in covenant faithfulness. He's going to judge people because they're not, ex- they're not doing justice. They're not doing righteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Luke tells us in Acts 13.41 that Paul quotes the serious warning of Habakkuk 1.5 at the end of his preaching in the synagogue in Antioch. Acts 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes... There we go again with that. Got to believe. It's not just for everybody. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what he said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. To those who don't respond to Paul's gospel message, through the obedience of faith, Paul's preaching Christ Yeshua. People who don't respond, he's given them a warning. He tells them, remember the words of Habakkuk the prophet. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe. God's going to bring judgment. The context of Habakkuk's words was the approach of invaders. Habakkuk warned Judah of the impending judgment that God would bring on them through the Chaldeans because of their unrepentant hearts. And the implication is, just as God surely carried out that judgment, He's going to bring destruction on you if you scoff at His gracious promise of salvation through faith in Christ. Habakkuk speaks speaks of a coming event. In verse 2 he says, wait for it. For it will certainly come, he says, it won't delay. The author of Hebrews personalizes it when he quotes from Habakkuk in Hebrews 10, 37 and 38. And he says, for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. Now that's a time statement, people. How how difficult is that to understand? When is Christ going to come? Yet a little while. And this is very emphatic. You, You know, in the Greek it's, In a very little while, he that shall come will come. But he says, the righteous one shall live by faith. There he quotes Habakkuk. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This prophecy was fulfilled at the second coming of Christ in AD 70 when God came in judgment on the enemies of his people, which were the Jews, and vindicated his people, the Christians, forever. So Paul is using this quote from Habakkuk in Romans 1. He is saying God will be faithful to His covenant, which involves judgment of the covenant breakers. Those who reject the gospel of Yeshua. God is faithful to the covenant, and part of that involves wrath against covenant breakers. That's part of the faithfulness of the covenant. So from the quote in Habakkuk, Paul launches right into the wrath of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The Bible teaches 
that God is a God of wrath. But if you ask the average Christian to tell you about God, what's the first thing they're going to tell you? God is love, right? Is God love? Yeah, absolutely. First John, God is love. To say that God is love is the truth, but is it the whole truth? No. Love is one attribute of God, but He has a lot of others. Holiness, wrath, mercy, grace, justice, omniscience, immutability, sovereignty, and on and on we go. But if you want to focus on one attribute, why? They like that one. Right? God's attributes are His characteristics, His excellency or qualities exercised visibly in His work of creation, providence, and redemption. We call them attributes not because we add to them, or not, they don't add to the essence of God, but rather because they inhere in Him. They were and ever will be His. They tell us something about God's substance, His invisible essence. We learn of God as we understand His attributes. And, and apart from an objective standard, we can never understand God. What is that objective standard? This is the only objective standard that we have, people. I can't believe you got that one wrong. Apart from this objective standard, we can make God be anything we want Him to be. That's what people do. They create God in their own image. I think God is this. I think God is that. Where do you get that from? I just made it up. I like that God. Well, you don't get to do that, okay? The Bible is the self-revelation of God. And if you're going to know Him, you've got to learn about Him from the Scriptures, the problem today is so many people just believe in a God of their own invention. They've made up a God they're comfortable with. A God who is just love. He'll tolerate everything they do. He loves everybody. He puts up with everything. He's just a nice, gentle old man. This is not the God of the Bible, people. All right? Most people... Do not want to think of God's wrath at all, preferring to think and speak only of His love. And those who do believe God is a God of wrath as well as a God of love, they want to think that His wrath is past tense. See, that's how God used to be back in the Tanakh and the Old Covenant. He was wrathful, but he's, he's matured, He's grown, and now He's just a God of love. Well, Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. God is immutable, okay? That means He doesn't change. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's what the problem with, you know, you can be in a great relationship with somebody and all of a sudden they change and you're like, what just happened? God doesn't do that. He's immutable. Many seem to believe that God's wrath is an old covenant truth. And with the coming of Christ, we're now safe to think only in terms of His love. That's wrong thinking, people, about God. A.W. Pink writes this. Yes, many there are who turn away from a vision of God's wrath as though they were called to look upon some blotch in the divine character or some blot upon the divine government. But what says the Scripture? See, the object of standard. As we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the fact of His wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. God doesn't try to cover that up. 
He doesn't need to make excuses. That's part of who He is. The wrath of God is a prominent truth in Scripture. And a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to anger, fury, wrath, than there is to love and tenderness. What is God's wrath? Well, I think the problem is we really don't understand that. We think He's like us. See, wrath to us suggests a loss of self-control, right? Outburst that is partly, if not wholly, irrational. Just out of your mind, right? God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious. It's never self-indulgent. It's never irritable. God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial. Okay? Justice. You get justice. That's wrath. Okay? It's the wrath of a judge administering justice. Each person gets exactly what he deserves. Would you love to see that? In society, in our country, justice, you get what you deserve. Sometimes we don't, but I think it would maybe change some of the things we do. Nobody wants justice for themselves. Okay? No, no, that doesn't apply to us. We want mercy, we want grace, we want forgiveness. That person, give them justice, God. No, justice is a great thing. If, every, if it's straight across the board and everybody gets it, that's wonderful. You know, it's sad today that you can drink and drive and maybe even kill somebody. And if you do, you probably don't worry too much as long as you get an attorney because they play golf with the judge and the judge drinks and drives too. So he's not going to fine you too heavily or you know, come down too. So he just lets you go. That's not justice, people. It's sickness. Okay. Money has so corrupted the courts and what goes on there, that you know, our judicial system is good if you apply it, okay? Each person gets what he deserves. That's justice. Wrath denotes God's resolute action in punishing sin. It's the active manifestation of His hatred of irreligion and moral evil. God is holy, and His holiness demands that He not tolerate unholiness now here's the cool thing if god is just and we are sinners how can he let us go how can he accept us into heaven because of christ because his justice was settled at calvary he took his son he poured his wrath out on his son for our sake so our payment is made we have received the justice of god in christ and so, therefore, we're righteous. It's an incredible thing. God, you know, God would be unjust if He just said, oh, come on, I'm going to let you in. I like you. Come on. Come on, Gary. I, I know how you are, but I still like you. Come on. I'll let you in. No. It doesn't work that way. All right? The reason He lets us in is He goes, oh, my son paid your debt in full. It's all paid for. You can come on in. And guess what? You deserve to be here because you're righteous. God's wrath is being revealed, he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The word ungodliness here is from the Greek word asabia. It focuses on the relationship to God. So God's wrath is revealed toward those who are not rightly related to Him. The only way we can be rightly related to Him is through Christ. Through faith in Christ. If you're not there, you're ungodly. And the wrath is going to be poured out. Unrighteousness is from the Greek word adikia. This is important. 
Adikia has to do with treatment of fellow men, how we treat each other. When Yeshua was asked by a lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? He took the whole Old Covenant law and boiled it down to this. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if this is the greatest commandment, that it seems logical, then God's wrath would be expressed toward those violating the greatest commandment, which is being unrighteous at Ikea, not treating our fellow men right. People, our government is greatly in the wrong in their at Ikea, their treatment of men. Horribly wrong. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the word suppress here is the Greek word kataō, and it means to hold the truth. It could be translated to hold in the sense of believe, or it may mean to hold in the sense of suppress, push down. I think in this context it's best to see it as suppress. It's a present tense. They were doing it in Paul's day. In Paul's day they had the truth, but they were suppressing it. We see this all through the book of Acts. It was Israel who was suppressing the truth. Now, the doctrine of the wrath of God instructs us, I think, that we don't have to fret over the wicked. While they may appear to be getting away with it, they will someday face the justice and wrath of God. Believers, our God is righteous. And as righteous, He is just. And His wrath against all who are ungodly and unrighteous will be carried out. So sometimes we fret, we get upset, we'd like to, you know, take justice and righteousness into our own hands at times, but our God is just. We just have to, He's righteous. We just have to wait on Him. Let Him take care of things. I want to close this morning by looking at a promise that God made to His people in Second Chronicles. You might have heard this somewhere before. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, let me ask you this. Who is this promise made to? All right, thank you. It says, my people. Who is that? All right, at the time of the writing, who was it? Israel, right? But... He says, if my people who are called by my name, is that the church? Are the church is the church his people who are called by his name? Yes. And I think, you know, okay, I, you know, I'm not trying to destroy audience relevance here. This was given to Israel, but I don't know why we couldn't apply this. We are his people. We are called by his name. He says, if we will humble ourselves and pray. And seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Then he, we will hear from heaven. And he's going to forgive our sin and heal their land. Now, my personal belief is that Yahweh began a healing of this land. Four years ago. And I believe he's going to remove Biden and that administration and the evil people bent on destroying this country. And I believe he will continue to heal this land. I could be out to lunch, people. I know that. 
That's, I'm telling you, this is what I feel. This is what I believe. And I believe this because our God is a righteous God. And what's happening, and I think there's a bunch, a bunch of people in this country who are righteous, caring, godly people who are being oppressed, being suppressed by a government that is wicked. Not just a government that's off. A government is desperately wicked. And so I believe God's going to continue that work. And I believe part of that work would be stopping abortion. People, that is, there is blood in the land. We are killing the unborn. And we've gotten so used to it over all these years that, you know, it's time to stop this, people. But if we're going to stop this, and we're going to stop this wicked government, it's, I don't think it's by taking up arms and you know, marching against them. I think we need, as Christians, to humble ourselves. We need to call out to God. We need to seek His face. We need to turn from our sin, deal with our own personal lives, and ask God to give us grace and to heal this land. And, and I'm also praying that in His righteousness, He would pour out wrath on the ungodly leaders of this country. That He would give us leaders who care about the people, care about justice and righteousness. Again, I, you know, in closing, I, I really used to believe we deserve wrath. I, and my view has changed because I think that I'm seeing the corruption is coming from the government. I'm not saying that only government and Hollywood are corrupt, but that's where most of it is, I think. You know, there's a lot of good people here who care about one another and, you know, want to see things done right and people who love God. And uh, so, so I believe and I'm hoping and I'm praying that God would heal our land. But only time will tell. And I'll tell you this. Like the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. And even if he doesn't, we'll still serve him and love him and thank him for all he's given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege, Lord, to be called your children. Lord, things are a mess here in this country. I know compared to other countries, things are great here, but we're seeing it deteriorate very rapidly, Lord. And I pray that justice would be back in the land. Righteousness would be back in the land. And that a government would be installed that cares for the people wants to hear our voice, wants to rule for us and not against us. Lord, I thank you that we are free in Christ and we will never, ever have that damaged or lost. We are secure in the covenant, Lord. But Father, as we have to live here on this earth, in this time, I pray that it would be a place of righteousness and justice to raise our kids and live our lives, and serve you and honor you. Lord, thanks for your grace to us. We love you. Amen.